Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Collins. I'm the executive pastor of Adult Ministries here at Pulpit Rock. And my wife, Janae, and I have three kids. Um, our oldest, Logan, is a few months away from six. And then our daughter, Brooklyn, is, uh, will be four next month. And then we have uh, Lawson, who will also be one next month. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's good. But our kids are in the stage, especially the two old one, older ones, who are moving from, like, things they do are really cute to, like, being really funny. Like, they say things all the time that, like, full belly laugh, catch me off guard, hilarious. And Logan's in this age where he's starting to make some friends, um, which is a weird type of thing. It's something that Janae and I aren't always involved in. He, like, talks about friends he meets at school. Um, we were recently camping, and he met some friends at the KOA we were camping at, and they started a little biker gang, like, rolling around the campsite, and it is fun and terrifying to just kind of watch that happen. But I've noticed as Logan's been hanging out with some of his friends, he's been starting to say bro a lot more. Like, hey, bro. Yo, bro. And he says it to his brother Lawson, which makes sense. But then he also just says it a lot. I don't know where he picked this up. I hope it's not me. It's probably not Janae, so it probably is me. It's kind of embarrassing to think that I'm going around saying bro all the time. But he's picked it up somewhere, okay? Um, our daughter Brooklyn is wild and free and is her own person but she also really loves her older brother, and so she's starting to do the same thing, to be like him. So the other day, Janae was in the room, she was rocking Lawson, and, and Brooklyn came in and was you know, talking about their day, and Janae was affirming her about something, and Brooklyn kept doing this to Janae. Yeah, bro, yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah, bro, yeah, bro. So, yeah, so fun, so cute. And it's interesting, right, when you, like, God has given us this responsibility to, like, kind of steward and, and help form these kids, and it's scary to think that they're also forming one another, <laughs> right, that they're, like, picking up stuff and becoming like each other. Um, you know, we're in a series right now called Christ-like, and the idea is that uh, there are things that Jesus does uh, throughout all of the scriptures um, that he models for us. And so often when we are, are kind of following after Jesus, because all of our revelation about him is here in this text, we study it and we learn about him, but we don't always put on the lens to, to be paying attention to what is Jesus actually doing and how do we become like him, right? Because there's people who love Jesus, who follow after Jesus. We don't want to just know about him. We want to know him. We want to become like him and to follow in his footsteps, and so the whole idea of this series is we're just taking some stories out of the Gospel of Luke and trying to put on a different lens for a moment and just ask the question, what is Jesus doing and how might we follow in his footsteps? Last week, Susie walked us through the story of Zacchaeus and uh, we were challenged to imitate the deeper way of Jesus in that story. And today we're going to explore uh, another story in the Gospel of Luke that is truly like one of my favorites. It's likely a very familiar one to you. Um, and I love this story because of the words that Jesus speaks. So it's been fascinating to kind of put on a different lens and read through that same story, but look for some buried treasure, some stuff that maybe I, I haven't ever noticed before. And I just would love to do that together. You know, the story is a story of a woman who finds herself at the feet of Jesus, and she is all in. And it's this beautiful picture of surrender and faith, and there's so much that Jesus says um, but I want to focus our attention on what he's doing in these moments. So I'm going to make you work for it a little bit this morning, okay? I'm going to ask some questions. I encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to go back and forth a number of times. But because the story is not a real long one, I want to just read it over us. 
maybe encourage you just to enter into the scene and begin thinking, what, it, what would it be like to watch Jesus in this moment? What would it be like to, to observe what Jesus is doing? And then we'll pray and, and jump in and make some observations. Sound good? Awesome. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of women this was who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for scripture. We're grateful for the ways that we uh, can learn uh, and, and see Jesus uh, through these gospels. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus in a fresh way this morning. Would you give us eyes to see and understand? Would you lead us? Would you show us what it means to become like Jesus? Amen. So there's a lot happening at this scene, and I really feel like there's so much that we really could take time to unpack. We could do this over a couple weeks. And there's a lot that's notable uh, in some of the things that Jesus says. Um, as we pay attention to what Jesus is doing, uh, it becomes fascinating because we start to kind of unlock and see different things. So here Jesus, he's in this town called Nain, and he's been preaching and healing many people. So he spent the day uh, doing this, and at some point during the day, he gets an invitation to come for dinner, to come to this party. It says, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the house and reclined at the table. So forgive the like obvious question. I know it's a little leading, but what's the first thing that Jesus does in the text? What do we see? Yeah, he accepts an invitation to a party, and he's reclining at the table. So if we want to be like Jesus, we should go to parties, right? It's right there. I know I split the room. Half of you are like, I like where this is going. And half of you are like, eh, I'm not sure 
Like, let's see. Um, it doesn't seem all that remarkable on the surface, right? Like, it's a simple thing. He, we see Jesus do this a lot in the Gospels. There's lots of stories where Jesus is eating and he's drinking with people. He's reclining at tables. He's accepting invitations to parties. In the case of Zacchaeus last week, he's even inviting himself over. Uh, and I think if we slow down for a minute, though, we see something more in Jesus' actions. You know, as we continue to read, the most generous way to explain how the host feels about Jesus in this moment is undecided. Like, that's probably an overly generous, like, summary. And I think it's fair as you read it to, to read in a bit of skepticism, even an intent maybe to catch or trap Jesus. And so he, he invites Jesus. Jesus accepts this invitation, and there's all kinds of other guests here, we assume, that were also questioning, that weren't sure what they thought about Jesus. And Jesus enters into their world and is fully present and participating. I don't know how you're wired, but I love to host people. Like, I really, really enjoy it. I love to invite people into my thing, into my world. Um, some of that is just fun to create an experience and watch people, like, just enjoy it and be part of it. But if I'm honest, if I'm, like, dig beneath the surface for just a minute, um, there's a degree of self-confidence and control that I have when it's my thing. I can hide a bit as the host. Um, I can, you know, move from conversation to conversation. Uh, I always have an out or an excuse not to linger because it's my party. You know, I prefer it that way. I love inviting people to my thing. But I struggle sometimes entering into someone else's, especially if it's not a good friend or, or someone that I know well. Like if we get invited by a neighbor over to something or, or you know, someone that we don't know, it, it's, it's a vulnerable experience for me. I feel less confident. I feel less in control. Um, it can be awkward, and I, I even have anxiety about the awkwardness that I can't like, manage because it's not my thing. Um, I'm often walking into a room worried more about myself and how I'm interacting and projecting like, rather than just being present and truly engaging in someone else's world and their home and their context. Now, that's just me, and I realize God's kind of wired all of us differently so that may not resonate with you on the same level, but it is challenging to me the way I see Jesus over and over and over again enter into others' homes, others' spaces, others' things, others' worlds. And he gives them the gift of his full participation and his presence in those moments. And you notice, like, Jesus rarely is gathering people. He's not trying to build a following. Certainly people gathered around him. But what we see in the actions of Jesus is he's going, he's moving, he's going place to place, he's seeking people, he's seeking out individuals, he's constantly showing up in their world. Jesus, he, he operates like a missionary. He does the work of crossing cultures, of crossing contexts to spend time with people, to be present with them. And there's something for us here especially when we think about our neighbors, our coworkers, people who don't believe, who don't look like, who don't think the same as us. If we want to be Christ-like, we also should accept invitations to parties and join people where they are, not just always invite them to our stuff. You know, as a church, that's why we spend so much time talking about being outside the walls, working to get outside the walls of this place. It's not a thing where we, invitation where we say, invite everyone to church where we'll tell them about Jesus. But we see ourselves as sent people looking to join God where he is already at work. And we're fighting to work to do that work of entering in where people are and to join and meet them there. What happens next? Verse 37. In the middle of the party, 
a woman comes in and throws herself at the feet of Jesus. Imagine this scene. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now this would have caused the scene no matter who it was that crashed the party, right? But I think it's especially notable this room was filled with important men. The Pharisees held religious and political power. They were synagogue leaders and men of influence. And the text dances around her profession a bit. But the woman was a prostitute. The alabaster ointment she carried around her neck would have been used to attract and entice men and help others identify her as such. And it was valuable. It would have been worth money. But that's not what makes her pouring it out over Jesus' feet so remarkable to me. You see, the woman is all in at this point. Something she has heard about Jesus, likely earlier in that day as he was teaching through town, has arrested her. So much so that she burst into a room where she is unwelcomed and uninvited, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. She's unable to control her emotion in Jesus' presence. And as she kneels at his feet, her tears are so steady that she literally begins washing his feet with them. And she has no towel, so she uses her hair to wipe his feet and then deliberately pours out this ointment hanging around her neck. The ointment that she used to provide for herself. The ointment that she used to make her living as a woman of the city. And she has nothing to go back to now. She is completely surrendered. What does Jesus do? He doesn't move away. In the vulnerability and the discomfort of the moment, he receives. Her sacrifice, her faith, her offer of worship. Jesus remains present. He allows her to continue. And if we want to be Christ-like, we also should fight to remain present with others, to not run from potential awkwardness or discomfort. And that might seem obvious to you, but, but I think it can be incredibly difficult. Like, let's own that. Like, we all have a tendency to pull away from people when we get uncomfortable in the face of like that intense vulnerability. Or we often, because of our own comfort, create these barriers for people where we expect them to act, believe, or behave in certain ways before we offer our acceptance, before we offer our presence and our participation in their lives. If you do these things, then I can enter in. But Jesus didn't do that. And when we do it, we rob people of the chance to meet and to be with Jesus. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now the Pharisees have missed the whole thing. They do not see this woman or her faith. 
They just see a sinful woman. They see a woman of the city. They see the interruption to their party. But Jesus sees her. And Jesus could have launched into this scathing rebuke of his host, put all of them in their place. But what does Jesus do? Instead of shame him, Jesus uses questions to engage him. It is so challenging to me. And it's wild. The text tells us that Simon is saying this to himself. You see that? So either Simon is thinking this in his head, or he's mumbled it under his breath, and Jesus, knowing the thought, speaks directly to Simon, says, I have something to say to you. And then rather than rebuke him, Jesus engages him. He asks Simon a question in an attempt to help Simon see and understand the moment in a different way. And Jesus even affirms Simon's response to the question. Verse 41 says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. What Jesus is saying here is good, and it's worth just meditation. I want to encourage you this week maybe to spend some time with this story and just meditate on Jesus' words. But it's what Jesus does in this moment to ask questions and not just shame and rebuke that should move us. He doesn't preach or point out all that Simon has missed. He just engages him. And it's not just here. Did you know that in the Gospels, Jesus asks 307 questions? 307 questions. As best we can tell, Jesus answers eight. Eight. Isn't that fascinating? Maybe faith isn't so much about certainty and knowing all the answers. And instead learning to be genuinely curious and ask good questions. In fact, what if our faith looked less like an apologetic and more like peace sitting in the complexity and tension of unanswered questions? What if we as the people of God were known for the way we use questions to invite people into a journey of discovery with Jesus? Trusting the Holy Spirit is already at work rather than just telling them what they should know and what they should believe. If we want to be Christ-like, we also should ask more questions of those who think differently, who believe differently, who seem to have missed it. What Jesus does next is beautiful to me. Verse 44, he, he turns towards the woman. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, we aren't sure why the host didn't do these things for Jesus. This isn't Jesus just being like extra, like, why didn't you wash my feet and anoint my head? Um, this would have been common practice for a guest in that time if you would asked someone to come into your home. So we don't know why, but I think it does give us a clue of the Pharisees' intent in inviting Jesus, right? It wasn't to honor him or, it would have, or those things would have happened. But his words here, do you see this woman? Of course they didn't. 
And Jesus makes this woman who everyone is looking down upon the hero. She vulnerably and humbly throws herself at Jesus' feet. She does the neglected job of the host. And she has no verbal profession of faith. It's all in the act of her faith in this moment. Jesus elevates. He draws attention to her. He helps them see her. And if we want to be Christ-like, we also should elevate others and work to see and draw attention to the unseen. I want you to look at the last few verses. Verse 47 to 50. I just want to ask this question. What do you notice Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What do you see? Jesus forgives her. He affirms her. I love that he doesn't just say it privately to her. He announces it to every guest in the room. He proclaims it over her. And then Jesus makes this statement at the end that grabs my heart and my attention. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I get it's such a reversal from the beginning of the story, Right? You have this room full of Pharisees, very much at peace. It's their thing. They've invited Jesus. They're not sure what they think or what they believe. And into that room of Pharisees who are all very much at peace comes this woman very much in distress. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And now the woman leaves in peace. And the Pharisees are very much shaken by the encounter and the words of Jesus. Their peace is gone. It's incredible. And here's something I never noticed about the story until recently. We have no indication that Jesus leaves at this point. Like after this mic drop moment, he dismisses the woman, says go in peace, and then we're left to assume that Jesus continues eating and drinking at the table. Like can you imagine the rest of that dinner? Like seriously, like where do you go from there? And I can imagine the discomfort Uh, I don't know if Jesus felt discomfort, but I think certainly some of the guests did. And Jesus remains. Jesus remains because he cares for every guest of that party as much as he cares for the woman. And he remains present. We don't have any more in the text, but I think it's safe to assume that Jesus continued to ask questions. He continued to engage for the rest of the party. Because he loved every single person. He stayed because it was the same reason he said yes to the invitation. I want to be like that. Don't you? It's incredible to me. And Jesus shows us the way. If you want to be like him, then go to parties. Fight to be present. Ask more questions. Elevate others. See and draw attention to the unseen. Be willing to embrace discomfort for the sake of others. 
That is Christ-like. Amen? So as we continue in worship this morning, I want to invite you into just a, a brief moment of reflection. Would you be willing to ask the Holy Spirit to just lead you, to direct your thoughts, to direct your attention? And as you look at this list, go to parties, fight to be present, ask more questions, elevate others, see and draw attention to the unseen, be willing to embrace discomfort for the sake of others. Can you be humble enough to just ask what's hardest for you? Where you need Jesus' help the most? We all do. We can't become like him without his help. But where do you need Jesus' help the most? And would you ask him to help form that in you this morning so that we can become more Christ-like?